0: Right, well, uh, good evening everybody. Uh, welcome to the LSE and welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy Dialogue on Philosophy and Darwin. Um, the dialogues, as many of you know, have various forms, formats that they come in. They Originally they were uh, interviews with senior people in British academia coming to the end of their career, saying interesting things about their life and work. And then we found that a number of the most interesting people were already dead. So (laughs) uh, we decided that we'd have dialogues, uh, not about senior people, but very, very senior people. And um, we then changed it around again and we had dialogues on great ideas, uh, great books, uh, great events, and so on. Um, This occasion is a bit of a, a double act because we have both a great book and a great person. Uh, We're sort of marking here uh, in the forum the 200th anniversary of the birth of Charles Darwin and the 150th anniversary of the publication of The Origin of Species. And to help us through this, um, we have two speakers, well placed to talk about both Darwin and philosophy. On my right here is David Papineau who is Professor of Philosophy in King's College London and on my left we have Tim Lewins who teaches in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at Cambridge. Um, Tim has a recent book on Darwin, called, I think, Darwin. Darwin. <laughs> <laughs> Reitlich Philosophers. Uh, and uh, and also another recent book on risk philosophical perspectives. Um, David has also written widely on issues related to Darwinian thought, particularly, I think, uh, his philosophical Naturalism and The Roots of Reason, a collection of essays on rationality, decision, and evolution. And I, I think that it... Th- that one of the central themes for us tonight will be exploring this dimension of naturalism and what what a naturalistic account is going to look like, and particularly one informed by Darwinian ideas. And and as I understand it, what they're going to do is that Tim's going to sort of kick things off thinking about Darwinian themes. And David's going to look at the way in which they may have impacted or arise within contemporary debates in the philosophy of mind and philosophy of biology. So uh, that's their part. And then when they've um, run out of steam, they'll open it up for you uh, to put questions of your own or comments of your own um, until our time is up. What people who are listening to the podcast of this won't know is that at the moment the um, air conditioning in this room isn't working (laughs) so we're very very warm I hope you're cool at home okay I'll leave it now to Tim and David
1: Um, okay well thanks thanks very much for that uh, for that introduction and um, thanks to all of you for uh, turning up on a lovely summer's evening when you could be doing other things like I guess watching Andy Murray playing tennis So I thought it would be good maybe if um, I began uh, by trying not to fall off this extremely lively (laughs) chair. Uh, If I talk a little bit about um, distinguishing maybe Darwin from uh, Darwinism. Um, So it's very common uh, in philosophical circles uh, these days uh, to find interest in applying a modern evolutionary theory, broadly speaking Darwinian theory, uh, to a whole range of questions that uh, in the olden days one would have thought of as primarily philosophical. So those might be questions about the nature of the mind, (coughs) questions about the nature of culture, uh, the nature of knowledge, uh, ethics, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, And David will talk about that a little bit in in a little while. Um, But it's one thing to ask uh, how these modern Darwinian approaches uh, impact on these questions. Uh, it's another thing, I think, to ask the question, what does Darwin have to say about these things? And what's the relationship between Darwin's own views and what we might think of uh, as modern Darwinism? Um, and I just want to kind of lay down a few markers here uh, to point out the ways in which I think they are somewhat different and need to be distinguished. Um, so I guess one might take someone like Richard Dawkins to be the sort of paradigm uh, modern Darwinian. Uh, But what I want to do first of all is just point out some ways in which uh, Dawkins' views uh, are really quite different uh, to uh, the views of Darwin. Um, So, for example, uh, Dawkins doesn't say natural selection is the only evolutionary force, but he certainly seems to think it's far and away the most important one. Uh, Dawkins is also someone who thinks that natural selection acts uh, primarily, although not exclusively, on genetic inheritance, and he's certainly someone who rejects any kind of appeal to Lamarckian forms of evolution. Now, contrast that uh, with uh, Darwin himself. Um, Darwin very frequently mentions Lamarckian forms of inheritance. So the Lamarckian form of inheritance is meant to be uh, the thought that, for example, the blacksmith, uh, by working away at the forge all day, uh, gets strengthened biceps. And then because his biceps are strengthened during the course of his own life, uh, he has sons who are born, uh, so to speak, for free, uh, with stronger biceps, uh, without needing to go through the effort themselves. Now, Darwin, actually, it turns out, believes in the (coughs) importance uh, of forms of use inheritance. Uh, And if you look at some of Darwin's work, for example, Darwin's work on the expression of emotions, you'll find that he hardly talks about natural selection at all in that book. And often when he does mention natural selection, it's actually to reject its importance, uh, while also making use of Lamarckian forms of inheritance over and over again. So, if we take uh, Dawkins to be the paradigm modern Darwinian, then we might end up having to say that Darwin's not really a Darwinian, just like the old joke (laughs) about uh, Marx not really being a Marxist. Um, Okay, so a little bit of effort there to distinguish those two kinds of themes. Um, Another thing we might want to kind of get out on the table straight away here is is what are we doing here? Uh, And I don't mean what are we doing here in the kind of cosmic sense. I mean, what are David and I doing here? Why are we here talking about. Uh, Darwin and philosophy and again pointing specifically to Darwin here rather than Darwinism because Darwin himself really does seem to be best known for biological ideas, ideas about evolution, uh, ideas about natural selection, we think of him as being the guy who wrote those books about earthworms and orchids and climbing plants uh, and so on and so forth and it doesn't seem to have a lot to do at least in Darwin's own work with philosophy and some of the comments that Darwin makes seem to reinforce that rather skeptical uh, uh, approach one might take to the content of Darwin's own philosophical work. Uh, so Darwin says things like in his autobiography, he says, my power to follow a long and purely abstract train of thought is very limited. Uh, I should never have succeeded with metaphysics or mathematics. Okay. Um, now, I think what Darwin's doing there is not so much uh, writing himself off as a a, a fool who can't follow an argument. After all, Darwin says that the origin of species should be understood as one long argument. Uh, What Darwin is doing, though, uh, is I think he's expressing a certain amount of scepticism, not of argument, but of argument that is entirely in the abstract. Uh, And one might think that philosophers are just the sorts of people who put forward arguments that are entirely in the abstract. Uh, What Darwin likes uh, is broad argument, uh, often uh, rather... um, uh, ambitious argument but uh, disciplined uh, by uh, empirical facts um, and this then means that Darwin often judges people uh, who engage in speculation in a fact free kind of way fairly harshly and Darwin has some fairly harsh comments for philosophers uh, so this is kind of a, uh, uh, something Darwin says after reading a uh, rather negative review of the origin of species uh, by a guy called uh, Francis Bowen who at the time was professor of philosophy at Harvard University. Uh, So Darwin writes to his good American friend Asa Gray and he says, uh, I believe Bowen is a metaphysician and that I presume accounts for an entire want of common sense. (laughs) Um, And this is is not that unusual. Having said that, right, (laughs) having said that, uh, Darwin, is a, Darwin is kind of sneaky about this because basically when philosophers slag him off uh, he says, oh idiot philosophers when they're nice to him he, he revels in it somewhat so um, uh, another uh, mildly amusing letter which Darwin writes uh, this time uh, on the absurdly named English Riviera uh, Darwin is uh, in Torquay and uh, he writes again to Asa Gray uh, and he says um, very self-indulgent on my part, but I could find this very amusing. Uh, he says, as no one has aided the subject of natural selection and the knowledge of my book so much as you, I must tell you what has pleased me much after the many attacks on me for neglecting induction, Baconian philosophy, etc. We in England think John Stuart Mill the highest authority on such subjects, and he said lately to a friend who wrote to me as follows, quote, he considers that your reasoning throughout is in the most exact accordance with the strict principles of logic. He always says the method of investigation you have followed is the only one proper to such a subject. My wife's remark on reading this was, why, you know nothing about logic. Is it not, I mean Mills and not my wife's sayings, very satisfactory to me? Um, Now, all of this uh, sort of sets up a view by which one might say, well, there's lots of philosophy in modern Darwinian thinking, but there isn't really much philosophical engagement in Darwin. Um, so before I let David um, get a word in edgeways, I just want to try and persuade you that there is um, indeed some sort of serious philosophical content to be found uh, not just in modern Darwinism but in Darwin's own work. And I'll just very briefly say a few things about how Darwin tackles issues in uh, ethics uh, and issues in epistemology, that is, uh, questions about the nature of knowledge. Um, and he talks about a lot of other topics as well, and maybe in questions we can, we can discuss those. Um, so let's, let's look at ethics, first of all. There's quite a lot uh, of uh, his book, The Descent of Man, which is devoted uh, to a discussion of how what Darwin calls the moral sense, that is, our sense of a difference between right and wrong, how Darwin thinks that the moral sense uh, evolved. Now, one thing that one notices very clearly is that Darwin has a significant debt to earlier philosophical writings so you notice very clearly that he places himself in a tradition that includes David Hume and Adam Smith. That is uh, the tradition that sees moral behavior towards other people as motivated by a sense of sympathy. Okay. So the idea is that if I do something to help David out it's because in some sense I see David's uh, ill fortune, David's pain, David's misery as uh, as my own. Okay, and, and that gives me a kind of spur, a kind of motivational spur uh, to go and to go and help him. Um, Now, Darwin is um, puzzled by this. He thinks that the sense of sympathy is motivationally essential uh, in ethical behavior. Um, But uh, he notices that natural selection faces a problem in accounting for the existence of sympathy. Um, So translating into kind of more modern language for a moment, uh, the idea would be that uh, helping other people out uh, sacrificing yourself for them, uh, having sympathetic feelings towards them which lead you to do those kinds of things, seems to be the sort of thing that natural selection can't promote because doesn't natural selection always promote the fitness of the individual organism? Now Darwin diagnoses this problem as follows, and I'll just read another quick quotation out to you. Uh, Darwin says, uh, how, this is from the Descent of Man again, he says, how within the limits of the same tribe did a large number of members first become endowed with these social and moral qualities. It is extremely doubtful whether the offspring of the more sympathetic and benevolent parents or of those who were most faithful to their comrades would be reared in greater numbers than the children of selfish and treacherous parents belonging to the same tribe. He who was ready to sacrifice his life, as many a savage has been, rather than betray his comrades, would often leave no offspring to inherit his noble nature. The bravest men who were always willing to come to the front in war and who freely risked their lives for others would on average perish in larger numbers than other men. So Darwin's setting up a problem for himself here. He thinks sympathy is important, but how is it possible for natural selection to favour sympathy given that sympathy always seems to be detrimental to your own reproductive success, basically. Uh, What today uh, is called the problem of altruism. Now, Darwin gives an answer to that problem, uh, which is... uh, may expand on this later, quite a lot uh, different to that given by a lot of modern-day Darwinians. And that's because Darwin involves uh, what he calls selection at the level of the community and what is often these days called group selection. So what Darwin says is that although altruistic individuals, people who are sympathetic, who help others, uh, and so forth, do things for their comrades, uh, will do worse than uh, more selfish individuals within a particular tribe. Nonetheless, he thinks that tribes, which have large numbers uh, of selfish individuals, will tend to do worse uh, in the long run than tribes which are blessed uh, with lots of altruists, with lots of sympathetic members. So uh, he says, uh, another quick quotation again from The Descent of Man, uh, it must not be forgotten that although a high standard of morality uh, gives but a slight or no advantage to each individual man and his children over the other men of the same tribe, Yet, an increase in the number of well-endowed men, meaning morally well-endowed, an increase in the number of well-endowed men and an advancement in the standard of morality will certainly give an immense advantage to one tribe over another. Okay, so Darwin's uh, putting a problem for himself uh, and then solving the problem, attempting to solve the problem by appeal to group selection. Um, so I said, I said I kind of look at two examples, ethics was one of them, uh, epistemology, theory of knowledge is another. Um, so this is a, an area where modern Darwinians have been quite, quite keen to apply Darwinian ideas. Um, uh, people have liked to think of the growth of knowledge, for example, uh, in Darwinian terms. Um, so, I mean, I guess famously Karl Popper uh, was someone who thought that we could describe scientific progress uh, in evolutionary terms whereby different scientific theories are tested against the tribunal of experience and the fitter ones are the ones that kind of win out uh, in the long run. Um, and those kinds of ideas were largely analogical for Popper but they've been uh, developed, pushed a little bit more uh, in more recent years by people like uh, David Hull, the philosopher Daniel Dennett, philosopher again, uh, and uh, obviously again people like Richard Dawkins who said that we can understand, in some cases, cultural change in general, sometimes scientific change more specifically, uh, in terms of a selective process between not genes this time, but so-called memes, okay? and memes are meant to be a bit like genes, but they're meant to be things that exist at the cultural level, they're kind of catchy or contagious bits of culture that make copies of themselves, they hop from mind to mind okay, uh, within uh, communities. Uh, and they undergo selection processes in their own right as a, as a result of that. Now, if we look back to Darwin's work, uh, Darwin does not, to my knowledge, specifically endorse uh, pres- this kind of view in any sort of detail. Okay. Uh, however, there is a source of precedent, I think, for this kind of thinking in Darwin's work, and that's because he does say that uh, natural selection doesn't have to act solely on things like organisms or groups of organisms on organic units, like Darwin does think of natural selection as the sort of thing that can potentially be, as philosophers like to say, uh, substrate neutral. Okay? It can operate on all kinds of different uh, objects. Um, and he mentions this when he's discussing a cultural phenomenon, namely language change. Uh, so uh, in The Descent of Man, again, uh, he endorses the opinion of a linguist, uh, a guy called Max Müller, uh, and darwin says quote uh, a struggle for life is constantly going on amongst the words and grammatical forms in each language the better the shorter the easier forms are constantly gaining the upper hand and they owe their success to their own inherent value and darwin says that this isn't just an analogy okay he says again quoting the survival or preservation of certain favored words in the struggle for existence is natural selection so there again we see darwin in a way showing links with, uh, with modern philosophers by saying natural selection isn't the kind of thing that has to work on organisms, it can work on cultural units as well. Um, there's also a, a rather different epistemological strand in Darwin's work. Um, in some ways a more direct engagement with epistemology. Uh, and this is through some ideas worked out mainly in his notebooks actually rather than his published work. Uh, where Darwin effectively says, look Epistemologists or philosophers have for a long time thought that some items of knowledge are innate. Uh, But if you're an empiricist, uh, you're not going to like that idea. If you're an empiricist, you think that the way in which you acquire knowledge is by interaction with the world. You have to learn by engaging with the world around you. Uh, So how on earth could you have bits of knowledge that just kind of pop up there uh, without needing to have been learned? Uh, And what Darwin offers is a kind of resolution of this conundrum. He sort of makes uh, innate knowledge respectable for people with empiricist inclinations, for people with inclinations that knowledge has to be gained by interaction with the world somehow. And the basic way in which Darwin does that is he says, well, maybe knowledge can be built up uh, not through one's own interaction, one's own learning from the world during one's own lifetime, but rather one can inherit pieces of knowledge from one's ancestors which have been acquired through their earlier experiences or their earlier engagements uh, with the world. Uh, and so here again we find Darwin mentioning uh, the name of, uh, a reasonably famous philosopher, uh, in his so-called M notebook, and the M notebook, the M stands for metaphysics in his M notebook. Uh, Darwin says... Uh, Plato says in Phaedo that our necessary ideas arise from the pre-existence of the soul and not derivable from experience. And then he says in a kind of cutesy kind of way, uh, read monkeys for (laughs) pre-existence. So all I've tried to do just in this kind of opening kind of bit is try and persuade you that there's a bit of a difference between Darwin and Darwinism. Uh, there's lots of philosophical engagement that Darwinism has, uh, but that Darwin, too, has kind of interest in these kinds of areas. And um, David's the kind of expert on things modern, so he'll now tell us what it looks like from today's perspective.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Before I start, unless I forget, uh, let me just recommend once more Tim's wonderful, <laughs> wonderful book. It's, it's, it's a very nice book. I read it. And... Uh, it's very interesting. He's, not just recommend, he's read it as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, famous joke. Have you read it? No, I haven't even reviewed it. Uh,
3: uh, <laughs> uh,
0: so,
2: I mean, and, and it's full of good stuff, both about Darwin and about issues in the philosophy. Of biology. I've got a microphone here. Is, is I can hear it. Can you? I mean, so I should not jump around too much. Okay. Uh, Tim said I would talk about how. Darwinism is relevant to issues of general ethics, mind, culture and so on. I don't want to do that directly. I want to take up uh, Tim's thought that Darwin isn't automatically to be assumed to be uh, Darwinist. Uh, That uh, a lot of the things that Contemporary Darwinists, ultra-Darwinists, is sometimes called a lot of things they think Darwin didn't think, and I want to look at that and address the question of whether this is good or bad for Darwin. I mean, you might think, well, Darwin thought all these weird things, and nowadays uh, all the good philosophy know better, and bad for Darwin. Uh, and what I would suggest is that, in various respects, that's not so. That Darwin uh, or the kinds of thoughts you might have expected Darwin to have uh, would have been closer to the truth than some contemporary thinking and this will be relevant to issues of ethics, uh, mind and culture because I think uh, uh, there's a few respects in which contemporary Darwinian thinking doesn't get it right and doesn't help us to understand those things as well as it might. I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about, first of all, group selection and ethics that that, uh, Tim touched on and then In the general area of cultural evolution, I want to talk about non-genetic inheritance and selection and about Baldwin effects. So that's three headings. Uh, I thought I was going to have a blackboard, but uh, no, right. So first of all, group selection ethics. And and, and Tim explained, well, Darwin was worried about altruistic uh, instincts in humans and other animals, and how can that be? And, ah, well, it's group selection. And some of you might well have thought, uh, well, maybe that's what Darwin thought, but we all now know, following Dawkins and Williams and so on, that that's a bad idea. And uh, uh, all the bad philosophers of biology in the 50s believed in group selection, and then Hamilton came along and said, no, you can't explain altruism like that, you have to explain it by uh, kin selection or reciprocal altruism or some fancy business like that. And I want to try and persuade you quickly now that that's wrong. Group selection is a perfectly appropriate natural explanation for altruism. And I just want to give you a little example. Uh, it's example of the, the lazy beaver. The, the lazy, do, you, do you know? My, my children had a book called The Lazy Beaver. lazy beaver, yeah. You, right, well, so here's the issue. I mean, so you're a beaver, and there's this issue. Everybody's got to build the dam, right? Because you need a dam this winter and so you've got an option you could uh, contribute to the building of the dam or you could be a lazy beaver and you could kind of goof off and uh, uh, go and get yourself some extra fruit or meet some girls and so on and, <laughs> and right so the question is what to do and think of it from the evolutionary point of view, you might say well look you know, either the dam's going to be built or it's not I'm not going to make any difference and if I go off I can get some fruit and meet some girls and that's good for my uh, reproductive success, and if I stay here working, I'm just going to use up a lot of energy, and that's bad for my reproductive success, so I should goof off, but not so fast, because it's probably true with a beaver colony and building the dam that there aren't that many beavers to contribute, maybe you know, half a dozen, and one of you goofing off makes it quite a lot le- less likely that there will be a dam that winter. So if I had a what, I would have done some sums. I would have said, look, let's suppose that the value of goofing off is 5 and that the value of contributing to the dam is minus 3 because it uses up a lot of energy. But then factor in the chance that the dam won't happen because you aren't playing your part. And suppose, I mean, the dam is a big deal. Suppose it's worth 100, right? And suppose that... that it's 90% likely to happen if you play your part, and it's uh, only 80% likely to happen if you don't play your part, well, then it might be worthwhile from your individual point of view to make sure there's a dam, or do what you can to make sure there's a dam. And you You can put the sums in, but you can see the difference in probability of the dam that your contribution might make might outweigh the advantage to you of going off and looking after yourself. So, in this, so there you are. So, so evolution will favor beavers who contribute to dams and not lazy beavers. Uh, and you can, you, can, you can easily see how the, the, the numbers can work. Now, you might think, but hang on, that's not, that's not the real thing. Where were, with, we're with the groups? Uh, and uh, we're, I mean, this beaver's just doing what's best for himself. It's best for himself that there be a dam that winter and he's going to make a difference. Uh, still, this is altruism. I mean, it seems to be this beaver is doing something that's of more benefit to the other beavers in his group than it is to himself. The other beavers in the group are getting the increase in probability of the dam for free. And he's getting the increase in probability of the dam at a cost of expending his energy. So what he's doing benefits the others more than it benefits himself. That looks to me like altruism. can you, you might now be worried, well, how, do, how did this work? I mean, if there were all these arguments against the possibility of altruism evolving, how, how, I mean, how come it can be so easy? Well, here's a couple of thoughts. I mean, one thought is, often when you're presented with this kind of issue, it's presented via the prisoner's dilemma, let's not worry about exactly how that works, but the thought is that I can be selfish or altruistic and what I do won't make any difference to the root project. And if that's true, well then indeed you should be selfish. But in many of these cases it just won't be true. And it's not true in this case. What I do will make a difference to the chances of there being a dam there. So then the argument that of course you should be selfish doesn't go doesn't go through. Note also that there's a technical issue here. There's a sense in which the behaviour is more benefit to the others in the group than to the individual himself. But what he's doing is of more benefit to him than to the population at large. What he's doing is more beneficial than what would be done by a lazy individual. So there's another sense in which what he's doing isn't, in a technical, definitional sense, altruistic. But who cares about that? By our normal standards, it's altruistic, all right. And if you wanted to understand... How come human beings can evolve so that they can be relied on when they're building a dam or chasing an elephant or anything like that, how they can evolve so they value honesty and courage and such matters? It seems to me that this is a perfectly good explanation. We don't need to look for any fancy uh, modern Darwinian uh, accounts of altruism. The one that Darwin had in mind works perfectly well. That's the first point. That's the group group selection and ethics. I want to talk about cultural evolution and it's not quite the kind of case that Tim was talking about. Tim gave you a quote from Darwin where he was thinking about the evolution of language, the way certain words or constructions would become uh, prevalent and that's the kind of thing that nowadays is talked about under the heading of meme theory or something like that and as Tim put it, it's a kind of analog to biological evolution it's substrate independent I want to look at some cases where the culture is much more bound up with the biology that it's part of the same process as we understand in terms of natural selection of genes and I want to suggest that there's, there's ways of thinking about it that might have been attractive to Darwin which are kind of not so popular nowadays and they're good ways of thinking But whether they might have been attractive to Darwin is a bit complicated because we shouldn't be too quick to read back into Darwin our notions of culture versus biology. Uh, We have a very clear division in our minds between is something uh, in the genes or is it... Produced by non-genetic influences, and while that mightn't identify traits, most traits have both kinds of influences. At least we're clear about the different kinds of influences: there's the genes, and then there's the rest. Uh, Darwin didn't have that clear, clear kind of division in mind. I mean, as Tim said, he was. Uh, <coughs> A, believer, a great believer in the inherit- inheritance of acquired characteristics, in use inheritance. So take something like emotional tendencies, ways of thinking, levels of moral development, and would Darwin have thought of those things as cultural or as genetic? I think it's a bad question. He, he might well have thought of those as things that you could acquire through training and then would influence succeeding generations through what's inherited through social <coughs> reproduction. So is it cultural or is it genetic? I, mean, the, the, I, I think the question goes fuzzy. Our modern division between genetic and non-genetic only comes with, with Weissmann, uh, the great German cytologist Augustus Weissmann, uh, turn of the century. And he recognised that the hereditary material passed on from uh, parents to children through sexual reproduction consists in the germplasm in what he called the germplasm in the nucleus of the cell and he having kind of located this material formed a view uh, that seemed I think pretty much pushed on him by the physiology that that stuff wasn't altered by changes in the rest of the organism during its own lifetime. And then suddenly we think no inheritance of acquired characteristics and Weissman cut off the tails of mice to show that there wasn't any inheritance. Uh, you know. uh, and he drew the famous diagram, which I would have put on the backboard, but maybe we can just do it visually. So he has along the bottom, he has G causes G, causes G, causes G. That's the germline causing itself through, I mean, causing successive uh, versions of the germ plasm through the generations. And then arrows going up uh, I guess he 's on his letterings, but we have P, so the gene causes the phenotype, but no arrows are coming out of the phenotypes. The phenotypes, so changing your your biceps during your lifetime doesn 't affect the genetic material, and so we all think, yeah, so the, so the phenotypes don 't have any influence and and with that, we think of. Evolutionary change, biologically evolutionary change, as changes in gene frequencies, changes in the genetic material in the species, the, the structure of the, the species gene pool. And on top of that, we think there may be cultural changes. I mean, people can learn new tricks or languages and so on. But we think of that as kind of ephemeral and nothing to do with biological evolution. Biological That's how we think now, post post Weissman. I, I, I have a quote, I have lots of quotes. I have a quote. From Weissman so this is slightly uh, but it's just Weissman was a great genius and he saw as clearly as Dawkins and many later people what followed from his, his discoveries and he says from the point of view of reproduction the germ cells appear the most important part of the individual and the body sinks down almost to the level of a mere cradle for the germ cells a place where they are formed and other favorable, under favorable conditions are nourished and multiplied. It's a very Dawkinsian vision that there's the genes and all this kind of uh, body just exocrystins is designed to help the genes through the generations. Uh, anyway, so we now have Weissman, we have this clear division between the genetic stuff that's passed on generation by generation changes and that's evolution and all this all the ephemeral cultural stuff. I think we've got blinded by this diagram as much as anything else to to something else which is very important in biological evolution. And this is the fact that there is inheritance of acquired characteristics in a very straightforward sense. Think of these peas, right? What are the peas? They're all the things that people uh, learn to do. And inheritance is passing on from parents to children. And it's pretty obvious if you think about it that that habits, ways of thought, ways of behaviours that parents have, they pass on to their children, and so there should be some arrows across the across the Ps. I mean, what there shouldn't be is arrows from the Ps down to the Gs. Parents influence their children not through, I mean, uh, the kind of I'm talking about doesn't go through sexual reproduction; it goes through talking to them, teaching them, and so on. But they're perfectly good traits passed on from parents to children along the phenotypic chain as it were. Now, once you see that, then you might ask yourself this, why shouldn't traits like that be subject to natural selection just as much as genetic traits? So, suppose you're a father, a family, and you work out some really good new way of throwing a spear, or making a a spear, or you're a mother, you start telling stories about animals to your children and suppose this is a, a, a good a good thing for survival and reproduction to be able to throw a spear in this way or to be able to uh, understand about animals and suppose what's more that if you learn this from your parents your children will learn it from you well then the families with the, with the good tricks will spread through they'll have more children than others and after a while the whole population, have this trait when only uh, one family had it had it before. And I put to you that that's an absolute straightforward case of biological evolution by natural selection, even though the trait that's being operated on has nothing to do with the genes. The gene pool might have stayed exactly the same that the population's changed in a way that's entirely Darwinian. Uh, if, you, if you're there's a the technical stuff about you get natural selection when you have variation, inheritance, differential reproduction, all that satisfied in this case, it's just as much as I don't know, um, long noses spread through the Nordic population because it warms up in the air, uh, throwing spears spreads through the population because it catches you lots of fish. Uh. You might feel that these cultural traits are a bit kind of thin and can disappear very easily, and not the kind of substantial things that you can really talk about as being subject to natural selection and biological evolution. If so, let's, uh, that was the third bit. So that was the second bit. That was non-genetic inheritance and selection. My th- final bit is the Baldwin effect. And I just want to add in that if you put together the the non-genetic inheritance and selection with the Baldwin effect, then you get a very striking account of human cognition which many modern Darwinians miss. Uh, The Baldwin effect is the idea that if at one time some population of humans or other animals has a certain behaviour or pattern of thought that is entirely due to teaching and nothing to do with the genes, it's all learned, after a while it will come under genetic control, it will come to be genetically controlled. Okay, this is a kind of weird idea, and what it is, I mean, it, it, it was invented as a thought, as a hypothesis, uh, in about 1900, straight after Weismann. Once Weismann showed you that you didn't have Lamarckian inheritance of acquired characters, people said, "Well, what about this idea that, that, that we, we learn these things and then they become under genetic control?" Most people, the the view on Bu- the Baldwin effect is a bit odd. Uh, through the f- first half of the 20th century, it's had a very odd status. Nobody quite believed it. Uh, nowadays, uh, some Darwinians don't like it at all. Recent debates about it, you suddenly find a whole lot of people saying they don't like it. But to be fair, the ultra Darwinians, uh, Dorpins, Dennett, uh, are are both quite keen on the Baldwin effect. But anyway, that, that's uh, the search. Here's the Baldwin effect. Can uh, I explain what it is? How might it work? Well, Here's a very simple way of looking at it. So I said to you, look, there may be certain patterns of behavior and thought passed down from parents. So children very good for uh, uh, survival and reproduction, but they're required through learning. Suppose you've got that, and then imagine some gene that makes you a bit better Bit quicker at learning, this uh, some gene I don't know that makes you uh, very interested in animals, or uh, makes you be able to hold a spear a certain way, uh, or visual your voice box up a little bit, uh, stuff like stuff like that. Uh, if there's this behaviour which is advantageous, and takes some learning, then a gene that makes you quicker at learning it will itself be advantageous, and you can imagine that. Once you've got these culturally transmitted traits in place, then that will foster genes that make human beings better at learning those traits. And that will create the possibility of learning more sophisticated versions and so on. So you can see how you might end up with rather nice packages of cultural traits supported by, by suites of genes. The genes are there to help you to learn these cultural practices. And the culture is passed on so easily because we have these genes that help us learn. I'm not sure how many contemporary Darwinians think like this. It seems to me it's a very powerful way of thinking. It seems to me it's a natural way to think about a lot of human cognitive, cognitive traits. I mean, I find the idea that we've got a whole bunch of genes that suddenly came from nowhere that gave us all these fancy intellectual abilities. I can't really make I can't take it seriously. But when you think of the, the thing starting with culture and then being supported by genes and then more culture, and more, then it starts to make a lot more more sense. I mean, the first time I was told this, I I said, all these, all these kind of evolutionary psychologists they have these really complicated uh, cognitive adaptations supported by lots of genes, how I mean? How do they think it happened? And Matteo, our, our colleague Matteo Mameli, said, well... Well, maybe it all started off by general learning, gave you these things, and then the, gen- and I kind of burst out laughing at the idea that these fancy kind of innate cognitive adaptations all started off as things that were required by general learning. Anyway, it seems to me the right way to think about these matters, and it seems to me that if Darwin had had the conceptual apparatus we have now, he would have thought in this way and not in the way that many contemporary Darwinists think. So. That's what I've got to say about that.
1: Okay, let me <clears throat> let me pick up on a few of those
2: yeah.
1: ideas because, unfortunately, for a kind of bloody debate that you might want to see now, I <laughs> kind of agree with David about most of these things. Um, the Baldwin effect does seem, on the face of things, to be to be very very odd. It's not quite clear how it's supposed to work. Um, I think one thing that's maybe worth spelling out because you might say, look, if it's so useful. Uh, to have certain elements of behavior, for example, uh, learned in a particularly efficient way that's promoted by genes, uh, then why do we need all of this general learning in the first place anyway? Why can't the genes just kind of pop up and do it by themselves? Um, And the answer, which picks up on something that David just just alluded to I think, albeit albeit rather quickly, um, is that typically most advantageous behaviors involve a whole bunch of individual elements. They involve a whole set of little subroutines. Uh, so uh, in a case that uh, a colleague of ours, uh, Patrick Bateson, Bateson, likes to talk about, uh, these um, little Darwin spinches that kind of poke little sticks into, uh, uh, into trees and get grubs out using these things, they need to be able to pick the sticks up and they need to be able to poke them in if they're going to get the grubs out. Right, And just doing one of them by itself doesn't appear to be uh, quite so useful. Um, so the key thing is that if you just allow genetic evolution to do it all by itself, Uh, then you're either going to have to say that there's an advantage to fitness to just doing one element without the others, or you've got to say uh, that somehow or another all of these different elements that are genetically controlled are going to arise all at the same time. So one of the great things about the Baldwin effect is that you, so to speak, get the behaviour functioning through general learning and then once you've got it functioning as a whole through learning, then there's going to be a genuine selective advantage to any kind of genetic modification that can improve the efficiency of the overall process. So that's
2: that's kind of one- Can, of I, the can I just say that again? But I've, I've got a I've, I've, sorry, I've got a way of saying it makes it. So <laughs> so, tri- so, 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 <laughs> so so a gene that makes you pick up the stick, right, is only going to have an advantage if, as well you're disposed to put the stick in a hole. Otherwise, this gene has no advantage at all. And Somebody might say, well, so you need both genes at once, and that's never going to happen. But that's a fallacy, because you don't need both genes at once. All you need is that you're disposed to put the stick in a hole, and even if that's not genetically controlled, then this gene will have an advantage. So, provided all the bits of behavior are there, each gene has an advantage by itself. It doesn't need that all the bits of behavior need to be genetically controlled. Lovely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Proper job, as we
1: say in West Devon. Um, let me say a little bit about um, about uh, non-genetic inheritance as well, because I mean, Dave, David's absolutely right that it's hard to know how to categorise Darwin as a sort of precursor of uh, cultural evolutionary theories. Um, And the reason is that on the one hand you might set up cultural evolutionary theories as theories that assert contra the sort of genetic inheritance paradigm that a lot of important uh, evolution occurs, uh, not all, but a lot of important evolutionary processes occur because of the ways in which traits are passed from parents to offspring not by genetic inheritance but rather through uh, other forms of transmission, for example what offspring learn from their parents. Uh, so it stresses these, these different modes of transmission. Now when you ask, well, what would Darwin say about that? Uh, on the one hand, Darwin does talk about use inheritance all the time. So on the one hand, you might say, well, Darwin is just the kind of person who will agree that something that happens during the life of an individual parent, some skill a parent acquires, can be transmitted uh, to offspring. Okay? So you might say, well, that makes Darwin sound like a cultural evolutionist. The reason why it's hard to assimilate Darwin to that view is because, as David's already suggested, Darwin actually tries to go not for a sort of multiple inheritance theory where you've got a sort of, I mean obviously Darwin doesn't know about genetics, but he doesn't go for anything like a sort of genetic channel versus some other kind of channel. Okay. Rather Darwin tries to put together, not in The Origin of Species, where he says unfortunately I don't know the answer to this problem yet, namely how, how inheritance works. But later on in his work, uh, he tries to put together his uh, so-called theory of pangenesis. And the theory of pangenesis is meant to be a unified theory of inheritance, a unified theory that explains inheritance by the transmission of tiny little particles hidden inside the sex cells. Oh, you might think just like uh, genetic views, right? Except that one of the phenomena that pangenesis is meant to account for are these phenomena of so-called use inheritance, these kind of Lamarckian styles Of inheritance Uh, and basically Darwin thinks that um, every organ in the body is constantly producing uh, tiny little gemmules which then collect in the sex cells for transportation into the next generation Uh, and so Darwin says well one of the great things my theory can do is as a given organ changes whether that's the biceps or the brain as a given organ changes during the life of an individual organism so the gemmules it produces will also alter their character Therefore, uh, the kind of germinal material that an individual is passing on to the next generation will change too. So the, the reason why it's hard to assimilate Darwin to these views is it's very hard to see Darwin as a kind of dual transmission, uh, dual inheritance uh, uh, theorist. Um, there's kind of one theory, but it's a theory that allows for uh, a certain amount of, um, of acquisition of, of uh, uh, acquired traits, uh, inheritance of acquired traits. Um let me say a little bit I don't think in disagreement with David but maybe by way of expansion uh, or sort of further reflection on your initial comments about group selection Um, so it's quite right that there are are lots of ways of explaining um, inclinations to help that don't require that helping is characterized strictly speaking in biological terms in in an, in an altruistic manner okay so you I think acknowledged in your case of uh, the lazy beaver okay that uh, it may actually uh, involve a fitness um, payoff to choose to help rather than I mean I say choose to, to use uh, to, to, to it, it may actually promote your fitness to be a helper rather than uh, a a lazy beaver Um, and there are various models including many people think of so-called reciprocal altruism models as also being models whereby actually it's in a sense not really altruism at all it's all to your own gain in the long run Um, now one thing that's maybe interesting about this is that you might think to yourself well do I really want to hang my uh, theory of uh, ethical uh, behaviour uh, social uh, helping on these kinds of theories because you might say aren't these just the kinds of cases where in some sense or another uh, what you're doing is all sort of in your own interests really so it doesn't count as being properly altruistic uh, and here I think it's it's very important to, to maintain a distinction, a conceptual distinction between strict biological notions of what we might mean by altruism and on the other hand, the sorts of altruism that we're interested in when we're giving moral appraisals of other people. Uh, because it seems to me that when we ask whether somebody else is an altruist or not, whether we're interested in you know, whether that other person is a good egg or uh, a, ghastly, uh, a, a ghastly horror, um, we want to know uh, something about their motivation. Uh, and it's, We want to know something about their motivation. We may also want to know something about what, as a matter of fact, the likely kind of socially beneficial effects of their actions may be as well. But a lot of the time what we want to know about is their motivation. And uh, it's very important to realise that it's a mistake to think that when one says, uh, this is all in your interests in the long run, uh, these behaviours are going to help you in the long run, that doesn't of course mean that these uh, beavers who choose to help out rather than being lazy are making some kind of calculation. It doesn't follow that the beavers are motivated psychologically by self-interest when they engage in behaviour to build the dam. Okay. So there's nothing I think in uh, in uh, selection models in general that tell you very much one way or another about motivation. A very clear way of seeing that is that uh, if you just focused on standard individual level selection, um, there are very good reasons why it makes sense for parents, there obviously good reasons why it makes sense for parents to care for their children. Okay. Uh, from the perspective of natural selection, we will say that that promotes the parent's fitness, okay, because helping out the kids means the kids will be healthy, uh, they will live longer, they may have uh, more offspring of their own, your fitness is improved in the long run. Okay. Um, but this doesn't mean that at the motivational level we should expect natural selection to be equipping individuals with some kind of self-serving calculation along the lines of oh well I'm going to help out my kids because it's going to be to my own fitness advantage in the long run. Uh, In fact, uh, from the perspective of Darwin's own writings, he very much takes the view that we can use natural selection precisely to explain why it is that people act in in an unreflectively selfless way towards for example their own offspring, because acting in an un- unreflectively selfless way towards one's own offspring is just the kind of thing that is likely to increase your reproductive success in the long run. Okay. So I think we need to be very, very careful about sliding from a particular view about the, uh, the evolutionary processes involved in explaining the origins of various kinds of beneficial or helping behaviours in sliding from that kind of story towards, uh, say, for example, a cynical story about motivation. It's very, very hard to get to the cynical story about motivation from the natural selection story. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, yeah, the other thing I was going to say is I had no idea what David was talking about when he talked about arrows coming from the peas, and that's because I was thinking about Mendel the whole time rather than Weissman. And I was thinking what are these P? But you mean the, the letter P, right, rather
2: than the small letter P. I was I was
1: very I was very unclear on that to begin with, but then it became it became clearer as as you went on.
2: need a blackboard. Need a
1: blackboard. And that's why, that's why a blackboard is so important in this context. Let's um, ask a question. Yeah, did you yeah, should we um turn it over to
2: you folk? I think I mean I I, I had some responses, but I'll I'll save them up and uh, Maybe I'll ask a question in a while. So, Sam?
4: Um, One of the things that concerns me...
2: I say so we've been defending group selection but one shouldn't be too quick to think that things that are for the good of the whole are automatically thereby explained and uh, the idea that variability in the gene pool is going to be favoured by natural selection because it allows the species to evolve is an idea that doesn't I I, I can't make any good thoughts out of that I I, I, I don't think I mean you need to then posit that there's a process of species selection favouring the species that have more variability and maybe that's a possibility but that's a rather outre conjecture Uh, 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 what I'm trying to say is
4: I think that there's always an I think there
1: are two. I think you're making two. You're making two slightly different. Well, slightly different points there. So, I mean, one one claim is you know, quite quite right. Um, as as long as um, as long as there's variation that's selectively neutral. Right, as long as it's not bad for you, then even if it isn't um, giving any advantage, uh, it can still be maintained in the population. I mean, the mathematics of this is complicated and sometimes you'll find that selectively neutral variants will just disappear just through kind of dumb luck over time, other times you'll find that they'll uh, spread right through the population just through dumb luck over time uh, but nonetheless you certainly can have you know, a bunch of variants that are kind of pretty much as good as each other and there's nothing much in it uh, over, you have an advantage over the time over time um, yeah then kind of the, net, the next question I guess is, is whether or not that kind of existence of a pool of kind of more or less neutral variants is something that can itself be maintained by selection at some level or another um, and there yeah there you do get into kind of tricky questions about what level that would have to be so it might be it might be selection at the species level for example and that's a kind of debated issue um, as to whether or not I mean, you know some very respectable people think that species selection makes perfect sense
2: yeah What about one? One One each. But no what what was about interesting question. I mean, f- fossils aren't the only,
5: no, not the only kind of the evidence one, c- one can have
2: for uh, evolutionary histories, and it's possible that one could find uh, evidence for Baldwin effects looking at uh, existing species and changes in, in behaviour, I and mean, birds have quite rich cultures, and it looks as if some of their behaviours can be baldwinized, But here's a general point. Uh, sometimes you have a phenomenon uh, that's present and obvious. Uh, humans have eyes, and uh, now you think, what are the possible explanations? And there may be only mm. one explanation that can account for that. And, I mean, you don't need fossils to know that eyes have evolved in order to see yeah, it. I mean... Uh, no, I think that's... Uh, you think of all the possible uh, stories that would account for the existence of eyes uh, and I put to you that there 's no halfway plausible story that predicts that eyes would be as they are apart from the one that says they evolved in order to help us see i mean it, it, this is just inference the best explanation and, and sometimes even in the absence of of fossils and so on it i mean i 'm not saying this applies very widely in the kind of cases I was looking at in the cognitive realm, but but it, sometimes it will just be that there's no other possible explanation for some trait than that it evolved because it served some uh, well, obvious yeah, purpose. One
5: explanation is as good as another. I mean, it's not just the fossil record and all that, which we know is incomplete. but there's all that genetic stuff that massively... So well, I think the truth is, is that...
2: Darwin's idea. It's just not in general true that one explanation is as good as another some explanations don't explain very well and other explanations are pretty wacky to start with uh- can I ask a question on the scholarly issue and I think this i mean this is back to Darwin didn't have two clear pathways genetic and mm. cultural and I think this, I'm often interested in how this Impacts on ideas about race and in the 19th century because one can often find people saying things about different races being inferior Mm. and so on. And we may think, well, that's that's horrible. But it's not necessarily racism in the same way as we think it. Because we think if if somebody says that now, then you're saying that that bunch of people has a gene pool that's got it fixed and that's going to be so for a zillion years. But in the 19th century, somebody could have thought that and thought that some group was inherently handicapped relative to others inherently in the sense by the material they passed on through sexual but at the same time think that this race could be improved and improved by education and then they would be inherently changed and there's room in the 19th century for different views about how quickly races could be improved and people were more or less conservative about that, but you can see how all of them thought that these races are inherently different, but that can be changed by education and improvement. Now, where did did Darwin come out on this kind of issue? Just to go quickly and pick up on on the
1: the first part of the question, I mean, it's always the case that one needs to treat people's um, correspondence uh, unpublished notes and so forth with care because they don't necessarily represent the um, you know, something that's been thought through with as much detail as something that finally goes into publication. Um, uh, having said that what Darwin uses a lot of his correspondence for is precisely trying things out yeah. which sometimes make it into print almost unaltered. Yeah. So I was quoting from Gray uh, some of Darwin's correspondence with Gray on issues about design ends up at the end of one of his books, m- practically word for word. I mean, there's not that much difference actually between the letters and the uh, and, and the published and the published material in in the book. Um, but one, one does nonetheless need to use it with some care. And uh, you know, those quotations that I was using from letters with Gray were primarily used just to illustrate what I see as Darwin's kind of somewhat. Uh, Somewhat conflicted uh, views about um, uh, praise and blame coming from professional philosophers. Uh, so uh, it's not—it's not so much trying to work through any of his kind of thoroughly established views on, say, the moral sense or anything like that. Um, now, going back to what David was saying, um, I think it's—I think it's quite hard to pigeonhole Darwin here, and it's not clear that Darwin is always kind of perfectly honest with himself about these kinds of issues. So why do I say that? Well. There is some work uh, in The Descent of Man where Darwin talks about women and he makes it pretty clear that he thinks that um, women are uh, inferior to men in a number of respects, primarily to do with creativity, uh, artistic achievement, and I think in some way he says kind of, kind of remarkable <coughs> talent in more or less any area or something. Right? Um, now. At the same time, he does couple that to some comments which suggest that this situation, although although kind of an evolutionary one, because Darwin seems to think that um, uh, men have been driven to these extremes of creative performance uh, in order, basically, to um, attract female mates. Uh, That's kind of the view. but the, although Darwin thinks there's an evolutionary explanation for what he sees as, you know, a very kind of clear uh, inequality in the capacities of the two sexes, um, he does suggest at various points that it wouldn't be that difficult to fix. Uh, so he suggests at various points, well, um, you know, all we'd need to do would be to make sure that women were educated to the same level of men, and all we'd need to do would be to make sure that, um, for example. Uh, uh, I mean at one point, he says something like you know it's it 's partly because of the um you know terrifically demanding intellectual role that men typically have in virtue of being heads of households and things that mean that you know their faculties are being exercised all the time, and that doesn 't happen for women right and then you might think, well, maybe then Darwin would say, well, if everyone could be a head of a household, then the situation would all be equalized within a generation okay so it 's certainly not clear that for Darwin he 's trying to say that so I mean, he certainly does come across as a, as a as a as a sexist pig in terms of what he says about the differences between the sexes. Okay, um, it's not so clear that he comes across as a sexist pig in the sense of suggesting that it's it, you know it will be forever thus and there's nothing we could do to resolve it through precisely the use inheritance mechanism you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, I mean some some scholars say, well, Darwin didn't really think the situation could be resolved that quickly. He's just kind of put that in as a sop to some of his um, more high-powered female friends. Uh, And when you look at what Darwin says about race, um, he does tend to say things like, um, he does tend to say things like, uh, at the moment, um, at the moment, uh, there's a big gap between the highest ape which is a gorilla, and the lowest human race, and that's the Aborigines, okay? Um, And then he says, uh, in the future, it seems likely to me that that gap will be even wider. But he says it will be even wider because he's just been talking about the rate of extermination of various ape species, right? So he seems to think that sort of apes and lower humans as well will get exterminated over time because, for example, uh, Caucasians just seem to be so trivially superior to Aborigines in Darwin's view, right? uh, and and in that sense, he, there's not a whole lot of talk about improve, improvement of races. There's much more talk about just you know straightforward domination of one over another, and then um, the the gap between the highest ape and the lowest human becoming more and more extreme. So there are there are cha- there are you know there are charitable ways of reading Darwin, but it's not clear that it really sticks all the way through his
2: work. So um, you want to come in on this point?
4: Um, related to this point but an extent
2: if you like. Okay, go on, but you've got a question, haven't you? I I, got next, okay. Okay,
4: well you can deal with this whenever you want, but (laughs) you've spoken about gender, you've spoken
1: certainly not aware of Darwin saying anything about homosexuality um,
2: whether or not I'm it's genetically or some other way controlled one still might find it something to to explain from a biological point of view because there's the alternative that it was genetically prohibited i.e. that, that genes could have been set up so as to make it impossible to develop into homosexual So, and the question is why? Why not? Why? Why is evolution allowed? Allowed it to, to persist, so to speak. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm assuming that there's an obvious uh, issue that uh, it reduces reproductive, reproductive fitness. Now, uh, I mean, having said not that, not th- 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 there's a lot of a lot of things I might say. Not, yeah, not going to the
1: heterosexist advantage theory of um, homosexuality. <laughs> Just basically. Mm. That uh, homosexuals mm. are, are,
2: are suffering the side effects of randomness in the heterosexual population. Good. I said lots of things one might say. And obviously, that's one. <coughs> that, that it's a byproduct of other yeah. traits which we are advantageous. Develop, right? so, yeah.
5: yeah
1: no, uh, there are there are, very, there are kind of there's, there's quite a. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you're many are really familiar with that. I mean, there's, a, there's quite a sizable literature on both on um, Trying to expose the prevalence of homosexuality um, in non-human species, um, and then often moving on from that to try to give various kind of adaptive explanations. Um, yeah, and those can take various kinds of forms. So, uh, you know, it, there, there are um, uh, not so much group selection explanations, but something rather like kind of kin selection explanations
2: as well. That trying to that trying to mm. explain the, the prevalence of homosexuality. Not um, entirely plausible. I mean. Kin selection, so homosexuals look after their nephews and nieces yeah. a lot, and uh, nephews and nieces likely to share well, the genes. That's how the gene spreads. Uh, that's uh, twice, but with the, with <laughs> the, <with laughs> the heterozygous yeah. advantage theory yeah. it works for in two, in at least two independent cases for yeah. sickle cell anaemia
4: in Africa sure.
2: and thalassemia yeah. in Cyprus. So it's not a fantasy. No, no. So, it's has a sounds, 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 sounds Substrate. I must say, I'd never heard that theory, but, but when you said it has the ring of truth, it sounds very plausible. Uh, on group selection, so population control, uh, that was kind of the classic example of bad group selection explanations from the 50s. And if you compared it with the Lucky Beaver, you've got to think well, I mean, Tim said that the Lucky Beaver, look at, it's, there's something in it for themselves. It's not really altruism. You have to go off to think about motivations to see why it's altruistic. I think the lucky beaver is actually altruistic in another sense. It's being nice to its uh, social group uh, and more than it is to itself. But putting those fine things to one fine two things to one side. I mean, the question that you ask yourself is, what's in it for the individual who's Helping control the population vis-a-vis its uh, uh, passing on its genes, and if it's, just I'm old enough to remember the Living Desert, the Disney film, which actually had a film of lemmings rushing over the cliff top in order to uh, help preserve the group. But uh, but you think about it, right? So there's. The lemmings who are disposed to jump over the cliff, and one. the ones that are disposed to stay behind and give it a few generations, which are you going to have more of? I mean, it's not <laughs> population control doesn't so look a natural so thing to so be so explained so they by groups. They were yeah.
0: thrown off by the stage management.
2: No, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are, a
1: few, I, yeah, I don't know. If, I'm trying to. am th- trying to, try to wrap my brains about Were there even in clues about what Darwin would Darwin would say about homosexuality? It's very, it's very hard to see. There are a few. There are a few cases where he sort of has these kind of, you know, my my dear my dear bachelor brother Erasmus who still isn't married kind of comments. And <laughs> sort of sounds a bit sounds a bit nervous about it. I, think. But, uh, I can't. And then then he just comes across as a you know awkward Victorian basically. I mean, and th- there are all kinds of cases where you read Darwin and you think, oh, this guy's about to come out with something wonderfully liberal that makes us all feel. Like he's one of us, and then he absolutely cuts your legs out from underneath <laughs> you by coming out with something so kind of breathtakingly unreconstructed. So he talks about how, um, in his in his discussion uh, of of the evolution of, of the moral sense, um, he he talks about how kind of in in what he views as the kind of the early phase, our sense of sympathy is restricted in its scope primarily to members of our family or our immediate local community. And then he talks about how, for him, the whole march of moral progress is uh, to do with not just something promoted by natural selection, but by just by reasoning and experience, that we come to just extend the domain of sympathy well beyond our immediate community, uh, to encompass uh, uh, you know other members of our nation, and then other nations, and then and then other species, and so on and so forth. And so we kind of and you kind of think, oh, you know, it's this lovely kind of. You know, moral kind of harmonious whole, and then he says things like, you know, so. And then he says, so at the end of this, uh, we'd be even being sympathetic towards uh, maimed people, imbeciles, and other completely useless men. <laughs> 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 um, so, so you know, just at the moment that you think, oh, he's like a kind of lefty Guardian reader, then he he kind of slaps you around the face. So it's it's very very hard to to say. I mean, I find it very very hard to say. You know, what would what would Darwin's attitude to homosexuality be? Because right. you can't—you look at the, yeah. you I mean, you look at some of these, some of his, some of his writings, and it's, it's very hard to,
2: to, to predict. Okay. Do you want to go there now? Yeah. yeah.
3: Um,
1: Um, I think some of these kinds of questions arise because we're imposing a particular kind of framework that says, um, a modern framework that says evolution's got to be in the interest of preserving something or another. Right. Okay? Um, now, it's optional whether we describe it in that way. We don't need to describe it like that. So there's a very sort of run-of-the-mill way in which we describe it, which is we say, uh, suppose you've got a population uh, and there are some, uh, some sympathetic people in the population and there are some unsympathetic people in the population. Or there are some, uh, there are some uh, lazy beavers in the population and there are some energetic beavers in the population. Um, uh, there are some helpers and there are some people who don't do anything for anybody else. Okay. You can still pose the question, look, suppose you think that offspring tend to resemble parents then shouldn't we expect, given that, um, if, if we assume that everyone in the population benefits from having the helpers around, whether they have to pay the price of helping or not, if we assume everyone benefits whether they have to pay the price or not, then we'll end up saying, well, won't the people who do all the helping, because they're expending energy uh, as well as reaping the rewards uh, won't the people who do all the helping tend to have fewer offspring on average than the people who just stay at home receiving all the benefits but not lifting a finger themselves right? won't they be the ones that receive that have more offspring on average so therefore won't the population tend to change so that even though you've begun with some helpers and some uh, some lazy uh, you know lazy people then you know over time you'd expect the lazy ones to be the ones uh, you'd expect the population to be composed of a lot of lazy people so you can still you can frame these uh, you can frame these worries about how is it that certain kinds of motivations or how is it that certain kinds of behaviors can be expected to to proliferate over time. Those can be framed without having to say sort of you know what's the beneficiary here or what is it that's being preserved. I mean, there's a sense in which obviously you might just say well what's being preserved is just you know, the behavior you know, one behavior rather than another. And there's a sense in which you want to you want to say well. So at the end of this, do we have a population with a lot of helpers in it, or do we have one without any helpers in it? Okay, So there's a sense in which that's yeah, what's so being that's preserved, right. but we don't, we don't okay. have to frame it in terms of so kind of something's interests being maximised in the long run.
2: Can I, can I say something more about the lazy people? Now you've made such a clear case for expecting within the group mm. the lazy ones to increase in representation <coughs> over the <coughs> altruistic ones. I mean, every time the down gets built or doesn't, the lazy ones are going to have more... Payoff than the altruistic ones. So within any beaver group, think think of the, the altruistic ones as being blue, and the and the the lazy ones as being red. All the other the, way around. Yeah, <laughs> altruistic. Oh yes, I guess so I said I thought altruistic is nice and, and yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, uh, blue good. All right. Just to, uh, <laughs> and so with any group, the blues are going to get smaller and smaller, and the red is going to increase. But what you have to ask yourself is, I think there's a whole lot of groups, and within each of them, which was a nasty one? The red. <laughs> the red is getting bigger. But it may be that the groups with more blue in, as a group, get bigger. So you've got these two processes. Within each group, the red is crowding out the blues. But some groups are growing at a greater rate, and the ones with more blues in are growing at a greater rate. And it, then every so often, the, the balloons get burst, and you all get mixed up. And provided having blues in makes you grow at a greater rate than the ones having lots of reds in, after a while you get more blues and reds. So that's a nice way to look at it. Anyway. <laughs> there was a question. Oh, I feel like David Jim will be here. So, uh, uh, somebody stuck their hand up eagerly a while ago. Maybe the moment's passed. No, it's passed, has it? <laughs> okay, okay. There's uh, a question.
4: Um what we thinking to ethics. What about a group of uh, people that sets um, finds a, a set of mean, even criminal activities, habits, which prove to be somewhat advantageous to
1: mm-hmm. and assume that, that at some point such mean means mm-hmm. become under control of the genetic uh, element. Mm-hmm. Could we assume that the children of such group would be more likely to be mean and be criminal, and yep. that would be some uh, somewhat ethical consequence?
2: I guess yes. I mean that's what would happen. So you think that's quite likely? Okay. So here's here's an issue. Uh, can you do this? It's it's certainly likely that for some traits, the the equilibrium state is to have a mixture of different variations, different alleles. Uh, so it's arguable that. Uh, in a population where everybody's altruistic it pays off to be mean. I mean but if everybody else is mean then it's perhaps not such a good idea to be mean you're going to get into fights with all these really mean people so uh, so it may be that in our population uh, our ancestral populations uh, there was uh, selection for a certain level of deviant behaviour uh, that's a possibility yeah, I mean, it's always important
1: in these cases to you know remind ourselves that uh, you know it's one thing to have a very abstract model of how a particular kind of behaviour can evolve; it's another thing to say, well, you know, when you actually look at the fitness payoffs, does it really work out? So, uh, you know, one of the great things about punishment, right, is it makes um, <laughs> it makes mean behaviour less fit, <laughs> right? Um, uh, so, you know, it certainly you certainly one certainly can't just assume that that um, that, that you know crime pays in the long run. Ah. Uh, in that in that sense, um, uh, so yeah, you can. I mean, you can. You might you might kind of construct a sort of kind of thought experiment where mm-hmm. you say, well, you know, we can imagine this society where the criminals are the fittest ones. But the question of whether any particular society really is one where the criminals are the fittest ones is is, is a very, very different matter. And you know, and then you also have to assume for selection to work in the standard kind of way, you have to make all kinds of you know, unlike, well, all kinds of assumptions about about inheritance as well.
2: Question um, so. right at the back
4: mm um.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So, so I mean, a a feature of these models usually is that you can, you can change the payoffs of various kinds of antisocial behaviors by introducing punishment, right? So you might think, I mean, I mean, this is a very acute question, but I mean, you might think that um, you might think, oh, well, there's there's no problem with uh, uh, with, for example, explaining why it is that um, societies don't get overrun by kind of evil swines because uh, as long as you kind of punish them systematically, then uh, then then, basically the payoff to them won 't be great enough for them to do the overrunning in the first place, but typically, that does just defer the question yeah. right? and Pu- it, it defers the question to the costs of the cost of punishment uh, and the cost of engaging in in, in punishment behaviors but you know so such so I mean,
2: society so punishment is an altruistic behavior yeah punishment is a behavior that benefits the rest of your group and costs you i mean if you 're doing the punishing so the that that doesn 't
1: mean that there 's a mm. I mean, that, that doesn 't mean that um uh that the costs of punishment itself throw a spanner in the works for these models. What it does mean is that uh, you can't sort of um, wish away the problem of altruism by invoking punishment as a way of solving it, because typically punishment then brings about its own problem of altruism, and you'll need some kind of mechanism to explain how the altruism involved in punishment gets going.
2: But you might well think about, when we talk (coughs) about moral attitudes, ethical attitudes, so I uh, approve of honesty, cooperation, and so on. It's kind of part of the attitude that it's not just something that you want to do, it's not a a motivation. Part of the attitude is that you want to impose it on everybody else. That's what's distinctive about moral attitudes, that that you you feel that everybody should be moved (coughs) by this, and Something is wrong and needs fixing if they don't. So if, if one is going to explain the evolution of moral attitudes, then it's quite likely that it will come with that that you have an explanation of, of a disposition to punish. But that, 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 that's not to deny that the disposition to punish is itself a kind of altruistic attitude, just like the moral attitude generally.: okay,
3: can I just clarify
2: yeah. yeah I mean altruistic in a technical sense, yeah.. Mm-hmm. No, no, I'm just saying the other way around I'm, I, I'm saying the tendency to punish is, is, is a manifestation of the distinctive nature of moral attitudes. That they're prescriptive for everybody, not just for oneself. If I, may, I'm,
4: mm-hmm. I might
2: argue a to that, yeah. is, that, that is again just to something. The I'm, I'm, I'm not denying that. I'm, no, I mean, I'm not, I'm not denying that. I, I didn't give you an explanation. I just pointed out that, that the question you're raising is in a way built in to the whole question of the evolution of morality.
1: period of education making people better Um, yeah I think um, no I mean the the key is not to confuse kind of what I'm saying with what I take Darwin to be saying Right. Right. so I mean I'm certainly not endorsing Darwin's views about the hierarchy of races for example Uh, um, let me say I disagree with those Uh, I can't debate on it unfortunately but I um, and and then I mean in the context of this discussion of 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 Criminality. I mean, I took it that we were not so. I mean, I, I took it that we were not so much asserting that kind of criminality is an inherited trait, which is favoured by selection in the following ways. Rather, we were kind of exploring what, kind of suppose that were the case, then what would follow. I mean, I don't think there's very much evidence for thinking that criminality really is. I mean, criminality is a diverse set of behaviours anyway, and I very much doubt that there's good evidence for thinking that it's importantly
2: inherited. Uh, I I just want to say one thing right. in response to this question, and then you can wrap. So one thing I think is worth making clear that even if one's interested in all this stuff about uh, selection of genes and all kinds of behaviours are controlled by genes, (coughs) nobody sensible should think controlled means entirely determined. And I mean, let me just give a plug for Richard Dawkins, who's often accused of being some kind of everything's controlled by the genes. If you actually read him, he doesn't think this at all. In fact, when it comes to human beings, he thinks it's scarcely anything is controlled by the genes. He's, he's in fact, as uh, right-thinking as you could hope on these matters. Second point, uh, on the the thing we are talking about, about races, I mean, the striking thing to, to realise about Darwin is, is he doesn't think that education can make a difference and so perhaps wash out the influence of the genes or make everybody the same despite the fact they have different genes. He thinks, along with everybody else in the 19th century, that education can make a difference to the genes, so to speak. I mean, he wouldn't have called them genes, but it can make a difference. It can change the genetic material. That's a very weird, different way of thinking and, and we should remember that when we're looking at Victorians.
0: Okay, yeah. great. Uh, it's now, uh, I'm going to draw it to an end with sort of worth mentioning that at the beginning I said that uh, both Tim and David were well-placed to speak to us about Darwin and philosophy today, and, and now they have, they've shown that they are indeed well placed. And what we've discovered is that that is because they are peculiarly well endowed. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> Thank you for that, uh, and thank you for passing it on to your peers. And uh, we'd like to thank you now. <laughs>